Welcome back. You're listening to another episode of Taking Care of Business. I'm Financial Mail Money Editor, Julieta Televi. And I'm Financial Mail Editor, Rob Rose. And this is where we chat to the men and women behind big business stories of the moment. leaders, as you would have seen, are rapidly losing patience with a government that seems paralysed in the face of massive challenges and an economic crisis that is largely uh, self-inflicted. But increasingly, it does seem that big business is ditching its until now fairly muted diplomacy and getting pretty tough and blunt indeed. A few years ago, it was unthinkable that Business Unity SA would say that government is not prepared to face the reality that it doesn't have the resources to do what it wants to do and to take the hard decisions it needs to take. And yet that's exactly what Boos' latest newsletter is about. It's as hard-hitting as they come. Sipo Pachana, a man who has, um, is no stranger to anyone in the business world, whose illustrious career dates back many years in many listed companies and a position in Nelson Mandela's first administration, um, is here to speak to us about it. He's the face of Business Unity South Africa, and he joins us now. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Rob and Julieta, good, good afternoon to you and your listeners. Thank you. Um, Sipo, it was a very hard-hitting letter. In fact, I can't recall anything as blunt as what's come out of a, a, a voice of business recently. And you said, you know, we're facing a debt crunch, government's dithering over ESCOM, lenders have run out of patience with us. Do you get any impression that Soro Ramaphosa and his team take this seriously, take you or the voice of business seriously? Well, I certainly think that uh, the president takes us seriously. He's engaging with us. He's uh, very open um, and uh, clearly we're always left with an impression that he hears what we we have to say. But of course, there's a gap between that and what happens uh, in a lot of uh, in a lot of instances. Um, and, and it ranges from tough policy issues to things that uh, require just uh, people taking practicable steps and, uh, and, and, and getting on with it. Mm. It may be, it suggests that uh, there's a capacity problem in the state system, but you can't, but help, not help, can't help but uh, imagine that uh, it's got a lot to do with the destructions that are in the air uh, around him, uh, the crisis in the ANC, the tensions in there, the fight with the public protector, which mm. in, in, in our view is a complete sideshow, as you know, Busa has uh, 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 submitted a letter to the Speaker of Parliament yes. to <coughs> cause for the public protector to be uh, reconsidered, put through a review uh, whether she's fit for office or not. With all of what has happened, uh, we are uh, firm in our view that that uh, process should have been instituted by Parliament uh, a long time ago by now. Mm. Um, and, and, and of course, the bigger problem is is the dynamics in the ANC that seem to focus on things that uh, uh, matter very little for for the nation? Yeah, I mean it's 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 quite tragic, really, <coughs> that the ANC is so consumed with its own self. It seems to have little to no regard for South African society as a whole. Well, it it, it it's somewhat uh, the impact of it is that uh, here you have a, a party that is supposed to set the tone and set the agenda for the nation's thinking in terms of where we're wanting to be. ANC, by the way, is one of those organizations that uh, was a place of pride in terms of locating the thinking in the context of what's happening in the world. But today, so parochial, inward-looking, and consumed by internal battles. And yet, the changes in the world are, are resulting in the marginalization of the country and our economy to the detriment of us all. Yeah. You know, your letter, I think there was an air of despondency about it that I think was, was you haven't seen in previous 
previous communication. And there's almost a sense that people expected things to happen and now we've been let down um, quite tra- quite dramatically. I mean, you talk about the ANC being very, very inward looking. Do you think that's the sole reason? I feel like the economy is just sleepwalking into this massive crisis and nobody seems to be taking that seriously. Why are we here? Well, I'd like you to, to imagine that uh, that, in fact, is the tone uh, and the sentiment in business because mm. after the job summit last year, the president uh, decided to appoint to, to establish a presidential jobs council, which will meet at regular intervals. Preparing for that uh, saw business focus a lot more on things that make it possible to create jobs, which is the fundamentals of the economy. Is the economy moving in the right direction? Are we doing the right things? Uh, are we capable of enabling to, the economy to grow so that it can um, make it possible to, uh, to generate jobs? And that's where, the, that's where the focus of the conversation of the first Presidential Jobs Council was, was, uh, was about. And, and curiously, we were going to say this, but the president led the charge in, in, in making the point that the economy is in crisis. So that was a, a great relief for us because uh, we felt that uh, he's, he's acknowledging uh, and on behalf of government that we're in a very difficult place. Our view was that, yes, we are in a difficult place, but we knew that we would be in a difficult place if we didn't take steps mm. anyway because we, we had a very blunt and shocking uh, uh, mid-term budget uh, and the maiden budget statement by Minister Mboweni in October of last year. So so it was to be expected that that's what was going to happen um, uh, because you would expect it, you would have expected after that uh, in, in, in February that he would come back with uh, a budget statement that showed that uh, drastic steps were being taken to rein in uh, runaway debt, to take tough decisions around state-owned entities. Uh, and after the elections, you begin to hear that this municipality is not able to pay mm. uh, salaries of uh, employees and uh, uh, state-owned entity X is, is, is requiring a bailout of so much. So it's as if, you know, uh, we're not expecting any of these things to happen. And to the extent that nothing uh, that we know of is, is, is being done, we are yet to see more of this uh, sort of crisis. I mean, do you think it's the case <clears> that the ANC has... Because you had this kind of market-friendly ideology under Thabo Mbeki and um, a little bit more of a, 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 um, a worldview that was a bit more urbane. Um, I mean, it, it seems as if the kind of the socialist dinosaurs have taken over, have, have rested... The, the policy levers from the, 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 the pragmatists or the reformers. Is that actually what's happening here? Is it, is it a tussle between kind of the, the ideology of the SACP, the 1962, um, what was it, the Road to, to South African Freedom Manifesto, which talked um, about this, um, uh, what, what some have called the ideological handbook of the ANC. Is, is that what, what has happened and, and that's why nothing is being done? Well, I don't even think that, I mean, to, to, to couch it in those terms is to imagine that there's some uh, well-considered, thought-through positions that can be um, dressed up as something of an ideology. We, part of the problem is that there is no ideological foundation in the contestation that is happening. Uh, there is a great deal of very dangerous uh, populism and populist rhetoric that is not uh, founded in anything that is actually uh, about 
trying to get the numbers on site and uh, muzzle out somebody else in order to uh, be in a position of power and dish out patronage and and make as money as much money as as you can so it's all self-centered uh, mm. stuff so so it is it is uh, it is a dangerous place because uh, it, it suggests very opportunistic conduct uh, that is that is that is finding its way in a policy engagement that doesn't address the issues that are about where should we how should we be positioning this economy and this country and by the way at a time when the world is in crisis uh, the world economy is in crisis at a time when uh, a lot of our natural allies uh, in the times of years of national liberation struggle have moved a great deal and 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 some of the rhetoric seems to be taking to pos- taking us to positions and places from which they are trying to migrate uh, uh, into new areas mm. To the extent that that, in, that conversation is internal uh, and in closed environments, it doesn't take sufficient cognizance of even more powerful um, uh, uh, players in our economy that are indifferent to those conversations. But to the extent that we act on them, they also act with in, and, 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 and take and vote on their feet, if you like, mm. by uh, not investing in our economy and uh, marginalizing our economy, and we live with the consequences of that. Mm. In terms of where we are now, I mean, you talk about the opportunistic attacks, which certainly are happening, but all the time we're edging closer and closer to this fiscal cliff. Do you think we've actually tipped over the tipping point? I mean, can we be, can we claw back from this massive position of 38% unemployment at the expanded definition? I mean, it sounds like if you read all the prognosis for ESCOM and various other things, it sounds like you could make a case to say we're already over that cliff. Well, I don't think so. I don't think we're there yet. I think that uh, we are desperately moving there at, at a disturbing pace <laughs> because uh, both by our inaction mm. uh, and in some ways by acting contrary to what we're supposed to do. There is a pretense that uh, one of the things that worries me is that this idea of assuring public servants and uh, employees and state-owned entities that there will not be retrenchments is misleading. Uh, and the reality of the matter is that public service is bloated, uh, our state-owned entities are in trouble, and when they get rationalized, whether it's by our government or it's by IMF when we go and running to the IMF, one of the things that is going to happen is that there's going to be loss of jobs. Uh, one of the things that we have to deal with is how much loss of jobs are we going to uh, entertain? So clearly, if you look at what has happened in other countries, in other parts of the world, you can see uh, uh, what is penning, what is rolling out in front of our eyes is a movement to an IMF bailout, uh, unless we do things differently. We can still do certain things to move away from that situation. You were the first Director General in Nelson Mandela's administration of the Department of Labor, so you have a very keen understanding of the labor dynamics. Um, Do do you feel that the ANC is too enthralled at the moment to the unions, which is why there has been no action on the necessary job cuts that need to happen, specifically in the public service? Because you're right, unless we deal with the bloated civil service, um, I mean, everything is enthralled to that. Well, one of the difficulties, of course, is that uh, trade union movement is very, very divided. Uh, so there's 
positioning amongst the trade unionists. Uh, trade unionists generally understand uh, when negative uh, developments are going to impact, impact jobs, impact their ability to demand higher wages. And invariably, you might be surprised to hear me say this, they prefer to have a solid uh, counterpart on the other side who will say it to them as it is, and they know what they're in for, and they can negotiate the best deal for their members in the circumstances. Uh, any trade unionist's responsibility is to protect jobs, is to protect um, uh, standard of living for their employees, and so on and so on. There's no trade unionist who's going to come running to you and tell you that you have an overbloated public service, you must mm. cut jobs. It's the responsibility of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of government as an employer to take those decisions. Um, and of course, they must expect that there will be a pushback from labor and they will do what they have to do. Unfortunately uh, for government, uh, labor is not in a position to be an ally in those instances. There'll be, there'll be a fight. During the Mandela years and the Mbeki years, there were fights with the unions in respect of uh, uh, wage negotiations and uh, protracted strikes. And ministers in charge of those were sometimes drawn from the trade unions and the communist mm. party and so on and so on. But they appreciated the fact that they have a responsibility as ministers in government to act in the interest of the country. That's where we are. So, so I don't think that this is an issue about trade unionists and trade unions. This is an issue about a government that set about to run this country effectively, taking decisions that it has to take and engage with uh, social partners uh, responsibly. But you can't you can't run government by collective bargaining. I mean, Sipo, but but if the if if government is more about keeping power and that's more about um, ANC dynamics and the ANC has always one eye on the tripartite alliance and its union partners. Does that not kind of scupper that uh, national interest argument? So it, it, it that's the first question. The other is, I mean, should we care so much about the unions? Should government be so, should the ANC be that concerned about the unions? Because membership has declined is it not a diminished power base that's fractured and fragmented? I mean, can't, you know, if, if they were savvy, could they just say, you know what, sorry, guys, we're, this is what we're doing and you can like it or lump it? Well, I'll tell you from a business point of view, um, being in a position where you have uh, well-organized unions that you can engage with, with whom we differ sometimes, a good thing, right? is a very good thing for, and, and it's a very good thing for a democratic project anyway. So I don't think that government should set about to exploit divisions in the unions and seek to embark on a Thatcherite uh, approach of uh, decimating unions because you need a partner on the other side. Mm. Our view as business, and we've been propagating this, that this is an opportunity to have social compacts, to have an engagement with uh, uh, unions and uh, other social partners and agree that it's going to be more difficult before it becomes better. So traveling that journey of the difficult part, you need to get unions on site, but it doesn't mean that you'll get all the unions. It doesn't mean that workers will necessarily endorse what the unions agree with you. Yeah. It doesn't avoid uh, uh, work, workers taking to the streets when, when, it's, when it's tough, but it certainly 
uh, it says that you're taking the fir- in the first instance a step of getting everybody on site. I mean, you say that and I understand it, but then you see ESCOM and, and you see, you know, last year, or was it this year actually, when, when was the 7% increase eventually granted? Because ESCOM said, we can't give an increase at all. Yeah. Then government intervened yeah. and then you end up with this wage bill that is colossal and you've got growth in well, um, I, expenses I, 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 of 13% I, I, whereas revenue is up 3%. I think that uh, the intervention of government in the ESCOM saga and in ESCOM uh, wage ne- negotiation was a, a clear example of bad governance. Uh, <laughs> the, board, the board there took a view that Unions want uh, an increase in the face of an ESCOM that is in financial crisis. They're not going to get any increase. And the board took that position and they held the line. When government came in and said that, uh, look, you have to grant these increases, they actually uh, crippled the power and the authority of, of the board. So from there on, it must be difficult for that board to be taken seriously in that environment. It's very, very difficult. Government must decide whether it wants to run the state-owned entities itself or it wants to have proper business people who are appointed in those in those positions to run them through the boards. Uh, you can't have it both ways because uh, it's, one, it's, it's one or the other. Mm. Now, there's a very good reason why shareholders uh, have an intermediary that is a board of directors in all companies to allow for an objective... Uh, processes with a little bit of distance, which sometimes take into account um, uh, circumstances of employees, because yeah. employees are not always on the opposite side. They are yeah. they are very important part of who you are as a business. But in certain instances, you may take decisions that they don't like. But that's the that's in the nature of the game. But they mustn't have a fallback position in going straight to uh, a minister or president and all of that and they get in the middle of that. Let me tell you, I'll give an example, by the way. Mm-hmm. When I was Director General of Labor, uh, President Mandela intervened when I fired a number of employees who embarked on a strike in our compensation fund and pulled plugs and all of this and damaged things. And I fired them. And, and, and they went to the president and the, they didn't even go to the minister. They went directly to the president. And he called me and he said, you are supposed to be director general of labor. You are not. How can you? Uh, how can you fire employees? I said, Mr. President, this is what they did. And if I allow them to do it, you can be sure that many others will do it thereafter. But if you instruct me to have them back, I will carry out your instruction. But you live with the consequences. He went back to them and told them that he is the director general of that department, mm. and and rightly he took an appropriate decision. You can follow through with your legal action. Now, that's what uh, government should do. Yeah. There must be no pretense that you can have any government department that can run these state-owned entities. Appoint boards and appoint suitably qualified, experienced executives to run it. Talking about government running things that they shouldn't, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, you know, the national health insurance is, is, a, is a big issue and we should perhaps have a longer discussion about it later. But at the moment... You know, you look for government in terms of what they do, not what they say, because there's no faulting what they say. They say the right things, but then do things that are contrary to that. National Health Insurance at this particular moment talking of instituting a system that interferes um, with the market in such an immense way and will cost $256 billion at, a, at, I think, an absolute minimum seems a case of shooting yourself in the foot at the moment. Uh, how does Boosa view NHI? And um, obviously, there's a you, you can't fault the notion of universal health care. Yeah. 
But um, there are certain practical issues here. Uh, introducing this thing when government has a has a hopelessly haphazard public healthcare system that they've created. There's a big uh, debate in Busa about uh, the national healthcare system and and the national uh, health insurance uh, scheme. Uh, in part, there's a bit of uh, a concern that uh, there's a backlash against private sector providers, uh, medical aid schemes, and our own our own employees who feel that uh, this is an insurance that doesn't quite cover them. Uh, um, so there's an issue about uh, conduct uh, on mm. the part of uh, the private health uh, providers. On the other hand, there is uh, also an embrace of the principle of universal health care because of the principles of solidarity and so on and so on. But there's a serious crisis of confidence in government uh, with the best intentions in the world, given everything else that is in crisis, that even if it has a very good policy in what is being proposed here, that it will be able to execute. And the big part of the fear is that uh, is that you might actually collapse uh, the private private sector healthcare system in the face uh, of a public healthcare system that is in paralysis anyway. Mm. So that's that's the that's the dynamic which makes it difficult to have a. A, a, a sober conversation around around this. The motions are running are running very high. Uh, the, we had some briefings with uh, with the uh, uh, Ministry of, of of Health in the build up to the to the legislation, and concerns were registered uh, in respect of that. And we're continuing to having those discussions. And and part of it is, uh, by the way, you put the number of two hundred and fifty six billion uh, rand that will be put out that they, they argue that it's not it's not all that it will be a top up of about 30 billion, 35 billion and so on. There's a whole story about numbers but the major underlying concern. It will be expensive. It will be expensive and secondly that there is serious doubt about uh, execution capability on the part of government and a big fear that uh, the, health, the health system uh, will collapse actually. Because I mean, the fact is, you have government that couldn't sort out life as it many. You have, you have their seven pilot projects in NHI that were anything other than a glowing success, and yet, despite that, you think that you're now going to run this this sector. And like you say, we have a we have an overburdened um, tax, small tax population of I think 1.9 million people paying essentially 80% of the taxes, who now have to support 60 billion, 60 million people on yep. national health insurance and. And, and all we see every day is affirmation that that people are not getting value for their tax money. So that's that's a big worry. It's it's that's I think why the skepticism comes in. The rebuttal from government, which is a point of engagement, is that uh, your private, uh, your own employees are not getting much joy in your in your mm-hmm. private uh, healthcare system. But of course, the reason why they are hanging on to it, I mean, it's not that uh, most so people are, 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 not, are not unaware of the uh, poor service that we're getting sometimes from uh, private health uh, sector providers, is that they fear that uh, uh, what is not good enough of the private uh, health system will be worse mm. in the hands of in the hands of the state. So, the biggest problem with this uh, universal healthcare. Uh, with, uh, with this NHI uh, debate is that uh, is a concern about government's capacity to execute, whether it, their skills are there, whether, um, uh, I mean, 
the, the point being made that uh, it costs you a lot more today to 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 be part of the private healthcare system. That's why it's a system for those who are fortunate enough to be to be in employment. Yeah, mm. although you could, I mean, you can also argue that um, it's it's a cost that people will hap- will bear because they don't want to die in a government hospital. It's a it's a cost that people are prepared to bear, and they even when they are doing so grudgingly, because they have a lot more confidence that at least it functions better than the public uh, than, than the current public sector system, and that's 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 the gap, if you like. Yeah, but Sipo, I mean, I find it very interesting to see how Doctor William Kize has approached his critics, um, and and you've had people in the ANC like Panyaza Lusufi come out and say we will our people will not be denied um, universal health care uh, access to universal health care. And, which is a kind of a way of othering. It's us and them. Yes. Then you think, who? Well, who's our people yeah. for a start? Um, and it, it's it's a it's a classic deflection away from your own failures yeah. and an attack on a private system that works. But then you other it and you make it as if it's it's only for the rich. Yeah. Um. And but this seems to me um a, a core of ANC thinking oh, and and it, it kind of it sort of seeks to divide and conquer South Africans either along economic lines or, or along racial lines because there's a certain undertone there well I think so but I don't I'm, know what I'm, you think. I'm, 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 I'm very pleased that uh, they have committed to that government has committed to have an open discussion with business on this uh, I saw the minister last week and uh, we've I've asked him that he should come and have a, a proper conversation with business and share with us where they're coming from with some of the of the issues. Uh, they are very critical of uh, a, a private healthcare system that provides for some and not and not and not all. Um, but why should they? They are concerned about the fact that uh, the, the 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 public sector is subsidising uh, private healthcare provi- pro- provision and and etc etc et So. We are keen to go get to the bottom of some of those issues and see if there is a, a happy medium that we can reach. Mm. But certainly, the concerns that you're raising about what the likely impact of this on private healthcare in in most countries, by the way, where you have a universal healthcare system, public and private sector health uh, healthcare system sit side by side. There is no animosity between the two, yeah. and 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 of course. That's that's what we'd, we hope this will this will get to because people who prefer to be in the private healthcare system and who feel who take more comfort in that system shouldn't be forced in, onto a, 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 pri- a public healthcare system where they feel um, their lives would be at risk because if we do that and when we do that uh, by the way one of the key attractions to most people who want to be uh, on the African continent and wanting to, and, and choosing to be in South Africa is the, is the social infrastructure that we're able to provide and health is one of those. Mm. So from a business point of view, we'd be keen to make sure that uh, that is not uh, impacted negatively by what is being proposed. It's a very valid point. To go back to something else that you mentioned earlier, you talked of how we're skirting towards an IMF bailout. Do you think we are that close to it? And, and if so, would it be such a terrible thing to get an IMF bailout at some stage? What, what are the downsides of that? Well, first of all, I think that uh, um, how close we are to it depends on what we do. Um, 
We, we, we thought that uh, with the statement that was being made by the Minister of Finance in terms of his projection in October uh, of last year of where we're going with our debt uh, situation, we would make some certain interventions to make sure that we leave to that three-year uh, medium-term budget framework that he outlined there. Uh, and it is clear that uh, we are outside of that already. Mm. So those projections are turning out to be quite conservative. And we, we were quite uh, shocked. Uh, rating agencies were shocked. Everybody was shocked by those numbers. So there's a lot that we don't know uh, and how much, how much deterioration that is happening in state spending. And it becomes apparent. And it's getting worse by, worsened by the fact that uh, it's, it's, it's deterioration in expenditure and, uh, and, and it's deterioration in, 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 the, in growth of the economy, which means that your revenue uh, base is also shrinking. Mm -hmm. so, so it's a double whammy, if you like. So if, if there's somebody who has a clear sense of where we are, and I, I, would, I would be very impressed with that. The truth of the matter is that private, private sector is under immense uh, strain. And, and we keep getting shocked by the numbers. So our perspective is that we must work on a worst case scenario uh, and assume that uh, our revenue base is shrinking faster than we, we think and assume that uh, expenditure, which we don't have full control over, is deteriorating worse than we think. After all, part of the deterioration in expenditure has got a lot to do with the siphoning, continued siphoning of of resources from the state through corruption. Mm. I mean, the rampant corruption in at local government level and mm. provincial governments, and also still in state-owned entities, despite all these commissions that we see all over there and exposures that are happening, uh, that's some. Those are some of the biggest. Um, corruption is still among the biggest contributors to wastage in the in the public sector system. So, so we are concerned about that. So there are things though that we can control around containing expenditure and reducing public expenditure. And we think that there isn't a sense of urgency uh, to move to deal with those things. Yeah. And in terms of were we to get an IMF bailout, would it be a terrible thing? Would it not be that the IMF might then dictate certain structural changes that we need to make, but the ANC perhaps doesn't want to make until they're forced to? Well, I think that um, uh, an IMF bailout would be a bad thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's an infringement on your uh, economic, economic sovereignty, sovereignty as a nation. And, and as you know, you know uh, political sovereignty without economic sovereignty is, uh, is, 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 a, is a big problem. To have uh, an IMF that says to you that uh, now you won't spend this money on uh, so much money on education, you must cut. Mm. Um, no, you won't spend so much money on water. We don't care what your constitution says about uh, those kinds of rights. Uh, no, you, you know it. It just it just is a very very uh, difficult place to be in. And I keep making this point uh, that. More often than not, we look at uh, IMF conditionalities as something that manifests in emerging markets. Um, but in fact, uh, an example of uh, a powerful economy that could not resist IMF uh, uh, conditionalities that came with their loans was Greece, which is much stronger than uh, an economy much stronger than South Africa, mm. an economy that is located within the uh, eurozone and had the backing of the eurozone um, 
and 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 was forced a left-wing government the communist party government was forced to swallow the imf conditionalities so the political rhetoric in the air that um we can avoid imf it's a it's a it's a land of last resort and and we shouldn't underestimate that with the downgrades that are happening uh, financial institutions in the world might not be prepared to lend to us and then we'll lend up to IMF. It's not, it's often doesn't happen, it's not by choice. Mm. You lend up there because nobody else is prepared to lend to yeah. you. Do you think we've become, begun an irreversible slide into populism? And that, because if we talk about IMF bailouts, you've seen what's happened to Argentina. Yeah. So, they were over indebted, but they did have a lot of overseas dollar denominated debt, which we luckily don't have. Yeah. But then you got an IMF bailout last year. You got Mauricio Macri, who is a reformist president. Now you've had these primary elections, which have not gone his way. And in fact, they are a swing back to a very populist president. So it's almost as if the IMF, it's, it's kind of our populist approach will send us into the arms of the IMF, which will then just... Um, ram home a certain populism because the IMF conditions will be so harsh and so stringent and it'll uh, diminish spending on social um, needs in South Africa then it just becomes this vicious cycle do you think that's where we're headed well difficult economic conditions are fertile ground for uh, populism because people are looking for very simplistic uh, answers and solutions to, to problems so I don't have a job today because there are too many foreigners around me. I don't, I, my business doesn't work because there are too many foreigners. That are Herman Mishab is just down here. Uh, and, 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 and I think that uh, when you have political leaders like Herman Mashaba push that kind of rhetoric, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't help very much. So, so you know, uh, uh, now we must uh, uh, embark on... Uh, uh, take over of land here there and everywhere irrespective of what the law has to say so all of that and then you have racialization of politics and you have uh, the close cousin of racialization ethnicization of politics and and, and 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 there it goes and before you know what's happening society is a thoroughly fractious place um, and 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 it becomes very difficult to come back from that so mm. It's very important for political leaders to act in a in a responsible way and hold society together. Do you think our political leaders feel that that they can't let this happen? Or I don't only a few. Well, I don't always I don't always feel that they do. Actually, I don't I don't always feel that um, uh, there is sufficient courageous leadership to say, you know what, let's tell people what they are in for, and let's walk the journey with them. And, and, and that is about trusting trusting the intelligence of ordinary South African citizens. If you tell them the truth, they will believe in you and they will walk the difficult journey with you. I don't believe that an answer sits with making false promises to South Africans that we're going to create jobs. When we, when we went to the job summit on behalf of business, mm. I made the point that, that we are here because we're looking at what kind of projects and uh, and programs we can embark upon that can mitigate the tide of uh, 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 loss of jobs because we are in a job shedding phase of the economy because of where how difficult the economy is and secondly because 
the nature of work is changing because of the fourth industrial revolution. It requires new skills, etc., etc. So there's going to be a lot more shedding of jobs. So the jobs that we are going to create as a result of these projects are unli- unlikely to replace the jobs that are going to be lost in the economy. They require major structural reforms that, uh, that will enable us to ride the tide. Just one last thing I wanted to ask about. As Busa, um, we've seen a lot of angst over the last week. Um, we talk about trusting politicians over the donations to President Cyril Ramaphosa's ANC election campaign in 2017. Yes. There seems to be a lot of, a lot of uh, mis- misinformation in the public about businesses' proximity to politicians, but to some extent money money is central to modern politics. I mean, you can't have modern political campaigns without yes. having donations from the public. Yeah. I mean, transparency is surely the key to that. But mm. how do you view the, um, the, 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 the angst and the kind of social upheaval in the last couple of days over the donations to Ramaphosa's campaign? Well, I think it's a consequence of secrecy around pol- po- political party funding. Uh, that's, that's the biggest problem in my, in my view. Once there is secrecy, then people are entitled to attribute uh, whatever motive they, mm. they, they, they might think there is in, in giving. I, I think that in open democracies, business donations to political parties is a, an accepted practice. It's actually, in some instances, um, an expression of uh, support for uh, a party that uh, they believe will create a favorable environment for them to do whatever they think is appropriate for their businesses and for the economy to grow. And coincides with their uh, values. And, and etc. Or they might, it might be to do with their values, it may be whatever it is. And also transparency is important uh, to the extent that it enables society to say um, company X has donated or business leader so and so has, did not, has donated to this party or this leader and look at what is going on in terms of their relationship now that that mm. leader is in power and 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 we can we can as society hold the political leader to account the biggest problem around this is absence of transparency and i think this new legislation on political party funding goes some way it doesn't go far enough and i think that we must draw lessons from this Pro- problem for me is that uh, is 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 that I really worry about uh, the office of the public protector uh, and the way it's, it, it comes across as being used in a partisan way in respect of this. And we, we could have uh, benefited from a commentary from the public protector exactly about the dangers of uh, political party funding in parties uh, because clearly uh, I will say this, uh, that I have something of a schizophrenic uh, feeling about this because I, I really believe as a matter of principle in transparent political party political funding. And I, I don't like the fact that uh, some of these people funded uh, President Ramaphosa's campaign secretly. But they are something of heroes too because can you imagine if they didn't fund possibly would be having a Zuma regime uh, mm. continuing in in, 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 in in office. I don't like the fact that they did it secretly. I like the fact that they made it possible for Cyril Ramaphosa instead of uh, Zuma allies in the ANC continuing to be in charge. Mm. Sure. Sipo Petiana, thank you very much for your time with us this afternoon. Thank you very much, guys. Mm-hmm.